Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Is the president and Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivat Chobavei Torah in uh, New York, the rabbinical school I was very privileged to go to and to study with Rabbi Linzer. And um, uh, and uh, I just want to say uh, that this is not only uh, one of our our, our great um, global Jewish leaders, broad thinkers today, um, but also uh, not only broad but in depth, uh, the depth of thought and a personal. Uh, mentor and teacher of mine, and someone who's willing to take on hard issues. And so I want to just acknowledge on a topic like this, um, uh, um, the sensitivity of us easily being triggered. Maybe you are someone who um, has had abuse or someone in your family has. Maybe you're someone who was accused of something at some point in your life. These are heavy topics. um, And so they come with great sensitivity. And so we invite folks to chat in the side during the session. And then when we get to the Q&A, you can ask some more questions over there as well. So once again, the, the source sheet is on the side. And as people trickle in, um, AJ will share it over there as well. Letting the sinner back in. Is teshuva enough? Is repentance enough for someone um, accused of or guilty of sexual abuse? So with that, thank you so much, Rabbi Linzer, for being with us. And I'll, and I'll mm-hmm. pass it over to you. Thank you. Thank you. It's really wonderful to be here. And it's always just a thrilled to be uh, learning Torah um, over, you know, uh, the, um, with our new technology. Um, in the past, it sometimes would feel that if only I could be there in person, but now, you know, we're all the same boat. So it's really wonderful to be able to, <laughs> to really uh, be together with all of you um, and to be learning this important topic, especially as we approach Elul and the, um, you know, leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and thinking about Tshuva. I very much appreciate um, uh, Rav Shmuley's comment about the sensitivity and that this could be triggering. And um, I will try, of course, to be sensitive to that throughout. Um, and certainly when we get to the chat, sometimes when I, you know, might be exploring a source or something, it could be I'll be focused on the source. So if I slip in any way, you know, please forgive that and uh, be sure to raise any concerns that you have. Um, I'll also say that the reason the source sheets are a little large, which really is right, I tend to sort of have uh, very thorough material and you can, you know, welcome to look at what we don't cover on your own. Um, but it's also because they have parallel English and Hebrew. And just so that it's accessible for everyone, we're really just going to focus on the English. But for those that are um, you know, are, uh, are interested, the Hebrew will, is side by side. So this topic, you know, is tshuva enough, letting the sinner back in, um, is a, um, you know, is a really important one because in terms of how we think about um, sexual abusers, and it could be other people who abuse uh, communal trust, um, some of the some of the uh, excerpts I have here at the beginning are from the Bernie Madoff uh, story, you know. But that's money; it's clearly not the same issue. Although who would wipe out some people's complete savings, but you know, generally sexual abuse is of a much more more severe nature. But people who violate the public trust, and then they say, "Look, you know, I mean, sometimes it's one of those mealy mouth types of." you know, things, mistakes were made. I, you know, if anybody somehow was hurt by what I did, you know, I apologize or something, you know, but sometimes people will even say the words that sound like the right words, you know, that they'll say, I regret it, I did wrong, you know, I, I, I did tshuva, we're supposed to believe in tshuva as a Jewish people, and I want you now to re-embrace me um, and re-accept me back into your community. Um, and I think a lot of people sometimes, and I think I see this in, you know, in um, sort of uh, just conversations with people in their homes or sometimes even, you know, what appears in the newspapers, that this idea where Jewish were supposed to believe in tshuva um, and therefore somebody says they do tshuva, you're supposed to, you should believe them. um, I, I find that that is a very common discourse 
And I find that it can be a very harmful and a damaging discourse. Um, why is that? Because it allows people in two ways. It allows people to profess tshuva when, you know, we could have serious doubts if they've really done the hard work. Um, and, you know, um, and they're just sort of um, uh, wanting to make reference to this idea as an easy entry back in. Uh, and, um, but more to the point is that we are exposing ourselves to risks, right? And it depends on what type of, what letting back in actually means. But we could think of a couple of, of possible examples. I know, for example, in uh, one show, uh, maybe this is a sort of, you know, that's a very famous um, uh, Jewish author, uh, was, uh, you know, the, in the context of the whole Me Too movement, some charges were raised against him, nothing that was at the level that he was uh, sort of prosecuted and or put into, you know, put into jail, but something that, you know, I think was, uh, he, he maybe acknowledged and it was clearly uh, harmful behavior. Um, and then the question was, he came up with a new book and would the show have a, you know, sponsor a talk of his and a panel of him talking about his new book? Um, and, you know, and if there were people particularly in the show that were hurt by him. So, you know, the cost there of letting somebody sort of saying, oh, well, I said I did chuva, so you should accept me back. Uh, I mean, the cost there is how are you hurting the people that were his victims by putting it, this person in a position of, you know, of, 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 um, of, of honor and of uh, acclaim and, you know, giving them a pulpit and so on. How are you, you know, how, how is that just the, that painful to the victims? And what are you, message are you communicating to the broader community? You know, you could do this type of stuff and, you know, and then sort of get away with it or, you know, turn around and then everything is fine. So those are some of the questions about what are the costs um, if it's not, you know, if a real process of Cuba has not been done. If a real process of Cuba has been done and somebody really has worked with the victims, it's really very clear, you know, that, that people have gone through a process. It's a different story or could be a different story. But, um, but if somebody is just professing it, you know, then that raises one level of questions. But a whole different level of questions, and this is really what I want to focus on, is, um, is even if somebody is sincere, um, what... You know, if, if somebody is a sex offender and we can tell that they are really terribly, terribly remorseful and, be, you know, and, and they've owned the horror of what they've done and so on, does that mean that we should now allow them to, you know, be a, be a day school teacher? We should trust them with our kids just because we believe in Cuba? What does it mean to say that we believe as a community in Cuba? And I think that's really the question that I want to ask. So again, what I'm saying is when somebody comes off and says, hey, we're Jewish, we're supposed to believe in tshuva, I find that operates on two ways. Number one is, therefore, you're required to believe me just because I said I've done tshuva, because we're supposed to believe in it. So, and since when? Just because you said it, why does that mean that I should assume that that's true? And tshuva's hard work. So just because we believe in it doesn't mean we believe everybody who says they've done it. And then the second part of it is, even if I have done tshuva, is that the same as saying, that you're ready now to trust me with your kid, you know, with your eight-year-old daughter. Um, is, that, does Chuva, is that what Chuva actually means? And that's the real question that I want to focus on. And I'll just tell you up front my thesis, um, you know, so you sort of know where I'm going um, rather than leaving you in suspense. Which, um, and my thesis is the following, is that Chuva is a basic principle about divine forgiveness. Chuva is not a halachic principle, it's not a communal principle. It is a principle that says that if somebody regrets what they've done and, um, and accepts the responsibility of their sin, you know, makes amends, then God will forgive that person. That is what Chuva says. Um, Chuva does not say that because somebody has gone through that process, that means that they are, are, deserve a res restoration of communal trust. Somebody could be forgiven by God because they've gone through this process, but they have not yet won back communal trust. We don't know that this person has changed enough. And in cases of sex offenders, we're dealing, you know, most of the time with deep pathological, characterological issues, so that change really isn't even possible. So that is a completely different question. And it's important to separate those two issues. The issue of, we believe that if you repent, you'll be forgiven. That's issue number one, as opposed to number two is, we believe that you can totally transform who you are. Um, 
A, not people, there are things that are deep and characterological that cannot be transformed. And B, whether, you know, it's very, very difficult to achieve that and you have to do the hard work to win back communal trust. It might be a lot easier to get God to forgive you than it will for us as a community to be prepared to welcome you back and to trust you again. So let's take a look at how that plays out, okay? If you take a look at the sources, I'm only gonna obviously read a small selection of them. The first one I gave here was, um, was uh, let's start with number three, okay? Which is actually the case of a sex offender. And here, this is about, um, you know, this is about, uh, uh, what's his name? I think it's about, um, uh, oh, now I'm forgetting his name, it was so many years ago, from the, um, from, um, uh, uh, from NTSY, a Lander, Rabbi, Rabbi Lander. And here's what Rabbi Blau says about it. He says, many of us are not trained to understand the nature of abuse and how pernicious it really is. He, Rabbi Blau said, when, that when abuse occurs, often we think it's an accident. Someone slipped once, they can do tshuva. Where concept of repentance overwhelms a sense of caution, especially with rabbis, because the assumption is, if he's a rabbi, certainly he repented. Blau said of abusive rabbis, he or, she, it or she is still a danger to others. I don't, I think there's no serious question that Nasira does not apply, meaning Nasira is informing the police. So the point is that there are, we are ready to assume that people have done tshuva, especially sometimes with rabbis and people that are in powerful positions and charismatic you know, people, and that's sometimes the people that can abuse their positions. Um, we're ready to assume it, and we also think it's achievable, and in some cases it is very much not achievable. So let's start being a little bit more concrete, and let's talk about what the general requirements are for Cuba. So I'm, this is from Maimonides, chapter two, and it's, uh, this is source number four. What constitutes repentance? Repentance consists of the sinner abandoning his sin and removing it from his thoughts. So he basically, in his mind, says, I I, I don't want to go back and doing that. I never want to do that again. And resolving firmly never to do it again, as it is said, let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. So number one is you are, you feel bad about what you've done and you don't want to do it again. You want to be remorseful over what he has done. So you have to have remorse and God who knows all things would be prepared to testify he will never return to that sin. And one has to confess verbally and declare all these matters that has reserved that he has resolved in his heart to do. So the three major components are remorse about the past, commitment about the future, and a verbal confession. Now, the reason a verbal confession is important is because it is sometimes very hard to say out that out loud. It's one thing to think in your mind, oh, I feel so bad about, you know, that I gamble. Oh, I'm never going to go back and gamble again and so on. But to actually say out loud, you know, I'm a gambler, I have an addiction, I, I accept what I've done is wrong, I realize that I've hurt people as a result, that concretizes it and makes it real. And that's also an owning of responsibility, recognizing, you know, that's the first step. I acknowledge that I've done something wrong and I say that. And now we can start talking about, I've concretized it, I've owned it. Now we can talk about regret for the past and acceptance for the future. So the first point is when somebody says done shuva, the first thing to check is, have they done those three things? Do we think they've actually done that? Have they made a real confession, a real acceptance of guilt? Have we seen that they really are trying to take steps to not return to those ways going forward? But often what gets ignored in that discussion about has the person really done chufa is the continuation about this, which is source law number nine here in, 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 in Rambam, in source four. Um, repentance on the Day of Atonement atone only for sins between man and God, such as eating a forbidden food and the like. But sins against one's fellow man, such as one physically injures or curses or steals from another, and all similar actions, such are never atoned for until one has to pay compensation for the person according to what he owes him, and has appeased him. Even though one may pay back any do money, one still has to appease the person he has sinned against and ask for forgiveness. It's one thing for God to forgive you, but to be forgiven by God for sins against people, you have to start by having the person forgive you, and you have to start by as much as is possible what is done. So the first big challenge, you know, again, if somebody who says that has done a sex offense and says, you know, I've repented, I've done tshuva, is one, is it sincere? Do you, do you satisfy, you know, Maimonides' sort of first set of criteria, a real acceptance of responsibility, remorse, and so on. But the big one that nobody ever gets to is the second point, which is, 
if you really want to do tshuva and you really want to go through the normal process, then okay, have you done everything in your power to make up the harm that you've done? Have you paid all of these people's you know, therapy bills for the, the remainder of their life because they're going to be in therapy because of how you treated them? Have you tried to pay damages for the actual pain and suffering that was suffered? Have you gone to them and begged for their forgiveness? Right? And like, you never hear of that. People think that, oh, I just say I've repented and therefore now that's tshuva. So the first issue when dealing with sex offenders is, or any really person who's violated public trust, is have they even done the basic components of tshuva? And even sometimes if they've done the first part, it's almost never that I've seen that somebody has really worked to do the second part. You know, the only person I know who I would say has done the second part was uh, this guy, I don't know if people remember that there used to be this like electronics change called Crazy Eddie's. Who here remembers that? Anybody? Am, am, am I dating myself? Can people raise their hand? Nobody remembers it? Okay, anyway, there used to be this electronics thing called Crazy Eddie's, which it was, basically the whole thing was a huge scam. And it was like by three, I think, Jewish brothers. And one of them felt so terribly remorseful after they went to prison and it was found out and so on. Oh, some people raised their hands. But he basically has de dedicated the rest of his life, not only to giving back all money to like, these causes and trying to find the people that were hurt by it, but by going, like, you know, and doing public education and going school to school to talk to people about what, has, you know, about what he went through and about how you have to be, you know, uh, um, um, honest in business and so on. That's like somebody who's done real tshuva of the second part that Ramba mentions. But it is extremely, extremely rare. Now, even if somebody does this, what we're talking about is a, what do you call it? What we're talking about is a, um, a uh, forgive, for God to forgive you. But what I actually want to turn to is not the question about God forgiving you, but the question about, um, about the community welcoming you back in. And if we take a look here at the sources, oh, Rav Shmuley, I thought I sent you a shorter source sheet. Maybe I sent you the wrong one. But anyway, um, let's take a look here at source number nine. Um, and source number nine deals with the following question. Rambam wrote in one place, Maimonides wrote in one place, that if somebody is a apikorif, if somebody is a heretic, then, um, then, we never accept their tshuva of a heretic. And then in another place, Rambam writes that, um, that if uh, somebody, that no sin is beyond tshuva. Somebody could have been a murderer, somebody could have been a heretic, their whole life and tshuva will work. So Rambam was asked, wait a minute, Rambam, make up your mind. You said that we never accept the tshuva of a heretic. And then in another place, you said everybody can do tshuva. So this contradicts itself. So if you take a look at, I'm sorry, source number eight, Rambam writes, gives an answer. And Rambam writes the following. He says, regarding what you consider to be a contradiction in the matter of heretics, there's no contradiction whatsoever. For regarding the statement, we don't accept their repentance, the intent is that we do not accept their repentance. And we will look upon them as, and we will look not, and we will not look upon them as one who has repented, but rather treat them as if they are still heretics, as they were in the past. And we assume that the righteousness that they are displaying is due to fear or to dupe or dis and deceive people. So we've never trust the repentance of a heretic. That's what it means that we don't accept it. Whereas the intent of the last statement that their repentance is accepted is that if they have in fact genuinely repented regarding matters between them and their creator, they will have a portion in the world to come. This is things between them and their creator. The first statement is between them and other people. And this, Little, little responsa, responsum of Maimonides is the essence of my talk, which is that if people do tshuva, God will forgive. You could do horrific sins and God will forgive you, okay? If you go through these process, and if of course you try to, you work to re rectify everything that you've done and all the hurt that you've done and so on, God will forgive you. That is what it means we believe in tshuva. But that doesn't mean we as a community have to believe that we can trust you and have to believe, we don't know if it's sincere or not. And even if it is sincere, we don't know if it, you really managed to change the type of person you are, right? And therefore, we as a community have to, are allowed to and have to really stay on guard to protect ourselves. So Maimonides was afraid that we have to protect ourselves against the, you know, the harm of heresy. 
And as is explained by later commentators, the reason he thought specifically we needed to be skeptical of the cube of a heretic is because a heretic, you know, heretics used to be called like free thinkers. A heretic is somebody who basically decides, I'm going to make up my own mind whether I believe in this or not. So if they rejected faith and now they've gone back and accepted it, they might sincerely repent. But because their whole nature of their mind and character is to is to not accept authority by virtue of authority, but to accept by themselves. Basically, somebody said nowadays we're all heretics. But anyway, but because of that, even if they're sincere, they might wake up a year from now and have changed their mind and decide they can't believe it anymore. So therefore, we always have to be on guard. Now, I hope you see that there are a lot of parallels here with a sex offender. When you are dealing with like deep characterological, pathological issues, even in a case where a person has done everything they can and they're terribly sincere and so on, we as a community have to protect ourselves and say, okay, but that doesn't mean that they can really overcome deep aspects of their character. And we always have to take necessary precautions. Um, so I'll talk in a little bit about what those precautions are because somebody who genuinely has done tshuva, you know, we, we want to protect our kids, let's say, but that doesn't mean we should not let them come to show, you know? Everything is a question about where do we draw the line. So let me just, um, just look at, so show you another source where, um, where, um, where this idea really comes to fore in terms of the community's need to protect their own interests and how tshuva does not mean the same thing in those contexts. So take a look here at source number 11. And here's what it says. So this is a discussion about who is invalid to testify as a witness. Um, and different types of people are invalid. And one category of people are people who, um, um, who will do improper things in, for the sake of monetary gain. Because those are people that you are concerned can be bought and might have, you know, their testimony might be bought. Okay, so let's take a look here at what, um, at what Rambam writes. And Rambam writes as, excuse me, the Gemara. The Gemara says as follows, source number 11. Dice players who are invalid as witnesses include the following. Those who plays with checkers and not only checkers, but even with nutshells and pomegranate peels. Okay, anyway, these are gamblers. Okay, and therefore gamblers who are willing to basically do something which is not halakhically appropriate, which is gambling has halakhic problems with it in order to make money. So we're afraid that they can be bought. Okay, and when are they considered to have repented? When they break up their checkers and undergo a complete reformation, so much so that they will not play even as a pastime. So when can you trust this gambler again? Not when they say, oh, I feel so terrible, I promise I'll never do it again, and they, 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 they even spoke to somebody they might have hurt in the process, you know. No, that's not enough. The only time that they now become trusted as a witness is if they throw out all of their paraphernalia you know, this is really like, you know, people with addictions, right? You can't even, you know, get, you know, you can't even do it for fun because it'll get you back into that whole world. You have to completely separate yourself from the world, throw out all the paraphernalia. You never even walk into a casino. You never even do it for fun. If you do all of that, then we know we can trust you again. Then we know you really have changed. So God might forgive you once you've banged your chest and asked for forgiveness and even asked for forgiveness from people. But that doesn't mean you've changed. For us as a community to forgive you, we need evidence that you really can be trusted again. Okay, and then similarly, if you take a look, let's say the third paragraph here, pigeon trainers, which is also they would raise pigeons, even the, the, that is those that raise pigeons, and not only pigeons, even cattle, beasts, other birds, when may they be reinstated? When they break up their traps and a complete reformation that they will not practice their vice even in the wilderness. Same type of an idea. So. It is very clear, you know, this is a really important point of distinguishing between theological statements and halachic ones. Tshuva, as we believe in tshuva as a theological statement, it is if you do the process, and it's a lot harder than most people imagine, especially when you've heard other people, as we've seen, but if you do that whole process, God will forgive you. Okay, your sin will be forgiven. That is what it believes. Okay, you are able to get a start again, get rid of that burden, you start with a fresh page, invest yourself, you know, don't have your sin weigh you down, God will forgive you, okay? But, it, but the halachic issue is not whether God forgives you. The halachic issue is, when can you be trusted as a witness? 
When can you be trusted as a, you know, butcher? You know, if you've cheated in business, right? That's a question that applies not to God, but to us as real people. And to us as real people, the question is, have you done so much so that we can see that you really have changed and that we can trust you again? And that is a very different type of a question. So let's jump to a place that that appears in, in another area in Halacha. And that is, um, let's jump down to, I'm really sorry, Rashmuli, because I, I, I trimmed down these sources and I guess I sent you the old sheet and not the new one. I worked so hard to get the new one ready. Oh, anyway. Must, okay, sorry. <laughs> is it possible that I said that you set put up? I, I guess you put up what I sent you. Anyway, so I, I presume so. If, if there was a mistake, it's my bad. No, 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 it's my bad. It's my okay. bad. Anyway, okay. anyway, but let's take a look here. Okay, so um, um, let's take a look at number 18. Okay, so here we go. Another perfect example of what tshuva means something different when we're talking about us as a community rather than between the sinner and God. And here's what the Shulchan Aruch, which is the classic code of Jewish law, says about the following case. I already alluded to it. One who sells forbidden food under the guise of it being kosher, okay? So you go to a butcher and you buy the food and, you know, and then finds out that he's been selling non-kosher meat. This actually happened about 10 years ago, I think in Teaneck or something, where uh, the guy basically was just selling chickens that were not slaughtered halachically, you know, because they cost him a heck of a lot less, so he made a much bigger profit margin. And everybody was sort of wondering, hey, how come the uh, chickens from this butcher are so less salty than they usually are? Anyway, eventually it was found out that they weren't kosher. Um, so somebody, let's say that happened, right? So he's removed from his position. We don't allow that person to be a butcher again. Um, you know, somebody who sells kosher meat, and we put him under the ban, right, which is the communal sense of being, uh, you know, of being pushed out of the community. He may not be reinstituted until he goes to a place where he is not recognized and returns a lost object of significant value. Or if he's slaughtering his own meat and declares his own animal of significant value to be non-kosher. So this person was willing to do terrible things for money. So what we have to do is we have to see that this person will, do, will be totally righteous when it comes to money. He finds a wallet with $10,000 in it, looks around, nobody is there, he could get away with it, and he goes ahead and he returns it. If that's now what he's prepared to do with money, you know, do the right thing, even when it's so easy to just pocket it, now we know that he will not go ahead and, you know, sell non-kosher meat just to make a profit. Now, the problem, of course, with the practical cases of this are twofold. Number one is, uh, what do, how do you create those circumstances? <laughs> I was a butcher, I sold on kosher meat, I feel terrible, I really have reformed, but I'm not gonna be walking in a city that nobody recognizes me and return a wallet. Like, who's gonna be able to recreate those circumstances? So, you know, so the post can say, the, the halachic authorities say, okay, what we need is something comparable to this, but it's something where you know that that person has acted in a way which shows that they are not willing to do anything for improper gain. Now, the other problem is maybe he knows he's being monitored, right? And therefore he's doing it as a, as a show. Um, so, you know, so that's why it says a place where he's not recognized. It has to be somehow a way in which you see him do it, but he doesn't know that people he's being observed. And again, it's not always possible to recreate that. But the basic message is before we can have him as a butcher, we need really good evidence that he can be trusted again and that he's not doing it just for the sake of being accepted again. And I think we all know cases about celebrities and other people who do their whole tshuva just so that they can put it all behind them and they can be accepted again, and it's always very in insincere. Um, and, um, okay, so, and, and similarly, so, um, and 16 is just sort of a continuation of the same idea. So, um, so here we are seeing that what Halacha says is, there's a big difference between tshuva as a theological principle and tshuva as a communal human halachic principle. Tshuva as a theological principle is God will forgive you. You'll be allowed to start over again. You're not burdened by your sin. And that we believe if you go through the, you know, like they say, what do they say in the, like AA, if you, if you work through the steps, if you go through the steps and you really go through them properly and you really work to rectify people that you've hurt and in a deep way, God will forgive you. That's a theological principle. But a real world principle is that we know that it's very, very hard to change who we are as people. 
right? And that we can really, really work on it and be sincere. And it still is very hard to change deep crates of ours. And, you know, and we don't know people's sincerity. And the real world human communal principle is we have to be very skeptical about how hard it is to actually change and also very skeptical about how sincere somebody is. And before we are prepared to trust them again, you know, we're going to really need um, profound evidence that that trust can be restored. Now, I want to pause here and talk a little bit about the case of sex offenders because, you know, in the case of sex offenders, I think most cases, you know, some of them like that that are like from the, you know, the, the Me Too category, which, you know, encompassed a huge range, right? Some of them, you know, are, are things that I think are very much within people's, you know, ability to not ha not act that way, you know, um, in the future if they if they really are deeply committed. But others are are deep and pathological, and you know, people even no matter how much they want to change it, are not able to change it about themselves. So what am I saying about those people? Am I saying that you know because they can't change who they are, they can never be sort of welcomed back into the community. So I'm saying two things. And I'll first start by saying that I had the opportunity to actually go to a prison and meet with a number of individuals who had were committed of sex offenses, who were in a program to help them be able to, you know, work on what they had done wrong and be able to manage in the outside society. And the basic thing that they said to me was, we are never going to change who we are. Like, we're never going to change, you know, what I want to do when I see an eight-year-old boy. Like, that's never going to change, my desire to, to do that, okay? What I can do, though, is if I'm committed to not repeat my actions, is I can make sure I don't find myself in that situation. I can make sure that when I go somewhere, I inform my boss or I inform the rabbi or I inform whatever. These are the protections that we are going to need. These are the guidelines that we're going to have to institute. And that will keep, you know, everybody safe. And that's what I can do, you know. So I can prevent those situations from occurring. And I can be responsible enough to make sure that that happens. So that is, if somebody act, is acting that way and they're coming forth and they're saying, you know, I want you to know I'm a sex offender. Here's what we have to do. If you want me in your show, I'd love to come to your show. But here's what we're going to have to do to make sure that, you know, everybody is safe. Right. So that's a case where, you know, that is a chuva that can restore trust. It still means we have to be careful with all those things. But we really, it is possible to restore trust because even things that are characterological, if you really want to change, there's ways in which you can uh, you know, create, make the circumstances such that the sin will not, that the sin, that the horrific abuse will not occur again. So that's point number one. Point number two is also, like I'm saying, the question is trust for what, right? It's one thing to say, I don't trust you to have you teach, you know, my kid. And it's another thing to say whether I will, um, like, allow you to come to my show and to, uh, you know, be part of the synagogue and so on. So the area, the butcher that we don't let continue to sell the meat, it doesn't mean that we don't let that butcher, you know, come to show, right? The area, you have to focus on where is that area that that trust has been violated and where you have to protect yourself. That's the place where you have to say, we have to act first, our responsibility is to protect ourselves, not to worry about whether you may, may or may not have done tshuva. Um, and then the other, but there are other areas in which we can be more open and more welcoming. So I will just sort of end and I'm going to turn it over to the chat because I'm afraid it's a lot of sources and maybe people have to talk this out. What I want to end by saying is, is that it gets complicated when the question becomes one of messaging. And what I mean by that is, let's deal with this example, right, about let's deal with something that's a little less charged. Let's deal with this example about the butcher who sold non-kosher meat. And we're not ready yet to have this person be a butcher again, right? Because he hasn't done enough to restore our trust about that. I'm not going to kick him out of show, but let's say, like, I don't know, he wants to give a million dollars and donate, you know, you know, the, uh, the, the Sifre Torah and wants to have a whole event in his honor, right? Or he wants to get, you know, read, you know, the Master Yonah on Yom Kippur, right? What are the things that even though it's not going to actively do something to hurt people, right? It is sending a message of, uh, of, of looking the other way, of acceptance, of you can do bad things and get away with it, and so on. Or you could say, no, it's sending a message that we believe in tshuva, 
You know, we, uh, so that, you know, we have to, so I think that is a really sensitive issue and a, and, and a challenging issue about, there are so many different ways we could be talking about re-accepting somebody in the community. And what I'm trying to get across is that our first responsibility is safety. You know, for Rambam, it was safety about people's beliefs. So he was careful about heretics. For us, it's safety about people's, you know, physical well-being, emotional well-being, financial Until I am 100%, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you've won back my trust, then I really don't care. The safety of me and my kids and my family and our community comes first. That's our first priority, not whether you're going to be welcome or not welcome, whether, you know, you say you've done shuva or not. And then the gray areas is when you've protected those immediate areas, uh, you know, and you have been safe, where are the other areas that you should, you know, be welcoming and accepting because we do hope you've done shuva and we do believe and so on, you know, that, that, that people can have remorse and change and people should never be fully tra trapped by their past sins. And at the same time, are we sending that message to the community or are we sending a message that you can sin and get away with it as long as, you know, you have enough money or as long as you're the rabbi's friend or who knows what. So I think those are the questions that I don't have clear answers to. But what I do have a clear answer to is that when somebody comes and says, hey, we're supposed to believe in tshuva, I've done tshuva, you should accept me back. There are a lot of answers to that, which is number one is you haven't, have you really worked the steps? Are you sincere? Have you really, really done everything to rectify with the other person, right? That's answer number one. But even if the answer to all that is yes, then the response is great, then God will forgive you if that's true. But I, we as a community are not going to give you our trust. You know, we're, there are cases where you can never win back that trust because we see this deep pathological issue. And there are cases where, you know, where you just have to, you know, uh, uh, demonstrate to us in, in extreme ways about that you are uh, somebody that can be trusted once that trust was violated before we can trust you again. And I just want to end by, by just pointing out a, a very sad uh, fact, which is that about how sometimes, you know, I think this is changing, but how sometimes, at least as a religious community, the ways we prioritize certain things and not other things. If you think about the case of the butcher, right, the butcher that really sold treif meat. So now I find out like, oh my God, I've been eating chazer, you know, pork, you know, and all this stuff and, and non-kosher chicken, and I can't believe it, right? I think it's clear that it would be almost unthinkable, you know, that we would have this guy come back as a, you know, to sell, to sell meat. Unless, again, something extreme made us over years convinced us that he had, he had changed, right? Whereas if somebody was like, there are rumors going around that he is inappropriate with some of the kids that he's teaching. Oh, but he's such an amazing teacher and he's so charismatic and the kids love him so much. Like, there, I think that sadly, uh, you know, we're not as like, oh, God forbid, like, you know, he has to, we would never allow him to do any of that again on, you know, because he, it's our kids, our, it's our kids' well-being at risk. I think that it's very sad that we act, we act, my feeling is we act in a different way, make it much more weighty if I've, you know, if what you've done is made me eat non-kosher meat, that I would not even think of having you sell me meat again, as opposed to some charismatic teacher and charismatic rabbi, that there's good evidence to think that they're acting inappropriately with people, and even worse than inappropriate. And there, I think we're much more ready to accept their quote-unquote tshuva, or look the other way, or not believe what we're hearing. And I think we have to really sort of, uh, you know, take that deeply, deeply to heart. I think, like I said, and, you know, I believe in some communities and many maybe, you know, uh, communities that is different, but uh, I think it hasn't gone away. So with okay. that, I will end my presentation okay. and open it for discussion. Amazing. Rav Linzer, this is so rich. It's so hard to listen to because of the, the heaviness and the weightedness. So we appreciate you taking this on so brilliantly. And um, we do want to open the floor for questions. But before we do that, there's three questions on the side. Two from Judy and one from Arlene. If you want to glance over those okay. and reply to whatever you want to reply to, and then we'll open the floor for more. Um, so the first one about do we have an opportunity, do we have a responsibility for the family? Well, if somebody can't earn a living for whatever reason, you know, even if it's due to their own actions, then yes, then we have a communal responsibility for their well-being. We don't say that because, oh, it's your fault, 
you know, your family, you now are destitute, so we have a responsibility to make, you know, as we would anybody. So the basic answer to that is yes, just as much as we would for anybody else. The fact that it's because of your wicked actions doesn't change our responsibility to you as a human being and for, and for the well-being of your family. Um, the question from Arlene is, the person is unsure about how does the community weigh the effect of the perpetrator's presence will have on the victims. Right. So that's also, I think I mentioned that example at the beginning about an author and a show from the Me Too movement. You know, I think that that's a really important question, which is that uh, I think what I would start by saying is, is that if the person has done the real tshuva, then it means that they've worked with the people that they've hurt and they've gone over to the victims, and now the victim might not want to talk to them, but they've done everything they can. Like I said, they can pay damages, they can support their therapy, and they have to ask the person forgiveness, right? So, it, so that's almost never happened. Now, the person could say, well, I'll forgive you, but I never want to see you in a public role, you know, because that would still be too psychically painful, even after you've gone through this whole process, I believe could happen. You know, then I think that that really is a important question about, um, my basic feeling is that we always have to protect the victim. You know, if somebody's actions have caused harm and as a result, somebody has been traumatized and, and doing something, you know, to the perpetrator, even if they've done shuba, will continue the trauma, then our first responsibility is to the victim, not, even, not to the perpetrator, even to the perpetrator who has done shuba. That is just my basic, that is my, that's my take on that. Um, Judy said, if the community does not have an obligation to redirect the person productive work to circumscribe the availability of victims, is it the individual's responsibility? Does not have an obligation, does have, not have an obligation to redirect the person's productive Oh, this is a continuation of the other one. Okay, that's basically, yeah, the, the continuation of, uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Is redirect the person productive work? Right. Yeah, so that's similar to the previous question. It is the community's responsibility to take care of all of its members. Obviously, ideally by finding them jobs, but minimally by pro providing them with, you know, basic needs and support. Um, and that's regardless of how they got into those circumstances. Okay, do we want to take other questions? Okay, friends, uh, feel free to unmute yourself if you'd like to share a question. Sometimes it takes a moment here. Are you able to unmute yourselves? Yeah. Um, Rabbi Shmuley, can you hear me? Yes, yes, Alan, great. Okay. Um, thank you, um, Rabbi Linzer. Really, um, really uh, enjoyed. I don't know if enjoyed is the right <laughs> term, but I, right. I learned a lot and I'm always looking to learn. Um, I want to focus on not the sexual predators, but the financial predators. And I mm -hmm. want to talk about three people, all of them who are. I'll call them very Jewish, even though I would argue that not all of them are Jewish. I mean, are very <laughs> Jewish. Um, starting off with Bernie Madoff, which you talk about, and then right. going to Michael Milliken and mm -hmm. Ivan Bosky. Now, mm -hmm. Ivan Bosky, um, all of them um, made hundreds of millions of dollars or more um, on, based on irregularities and affected a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, Bernie clearly... Um, um, there are a lot of char Jewish charitable organizations that went out of business because of, of Bernie Madoff. And I totally disagree with the, um, with Rabbi Avi Shifrin, who said, who right. claims that he, he made teshuva. And I absolutely agree with Rabbi Afi, who said he didn't make absolute teshuva. But Ivan Bosky on the other, so to me, it's, it's a non-issue. I mean, there's no question he should, he should have paid every single person back. I'm sure he has money somewhere right. and um, he, he should be paying every person back. Um, but on the other hand, Michael Milliken, after he came out of jail, uh, and these all happened within the last 30 years, um, when he came out of jail, has established a lot of charitable institutions, mm. gives lots and lots to tzedakah to a lot of Jewish organizations. I'm focused on Jewish. They may do mm -hmm, give to others mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. A lot of Jewish organizations. Rabbi Ivan Bosky, but I'm not sure, again, if he repaid his money to the people who lost Victim, the money, right. the victims. And the third one is Ivan Bosky, who, I, again, he made hundreds of millions of dollars, was a clear Ghanas, but yet did he, um, he is now a, what I understand, he's a strictly orthodox, uh, I don't know if he's Hasidic, but he's an orthodox man who davens three times a day and all that. 
I don't know again if he if he repaid his victims. What are your thoughts about those three? Well, um, <laughs> I mean, the first one is clear. Um, the uh, you know he hasn't done Shuva and. Uh, and yeah, and I mean that's why I exactly presented the Jaffe response, you know, mm-hmm. um, that some some facile statement like which he didn't even even say like even his statement was I think a little mealy mouse, you know, made up. But anyway, but certainly that's not Cuba. I think that the second one is an interesting one because how do you repay all of these untold victims? Now there probably is a record in some cases of you know of of of. Uh, of like who you directly hurt, I think by Madoff maybe more people who invested the money, you know, and um, and then and then lost it, um, you know. But people that do like financial shenanigans, there could be a lot of people that are indirectly hurt. And how do you even know everybody that was impacted? So the Gemara actually talks about this. If somebody steals from the masses, you know, let's say somebody I don't know uh, fills up a well that was used by the whole community, um, and you know, or steals from a lot of individual people and doesn't know who they stole from. So the way you rectify it to the best of your ability is you is you do something for the entire community. So if I've stolen from a dozen individuals and I don't know who, and I want to do tshuva, I'll use all my ill-gotten gains and maybe more to like exactly to, uh, you know, pave a road, a main road in the community that's been needing paving for the last 20 years. And then eventually everybody benefits from it, even the victims. So so the middle case sounds a lot like that. It would be interesting to ask, you know, why has he tried, why hasn't he tried to identify directly the victims and to make some form of uh, of restitution? I don't know if, I don't know what the answer is, but it certainly sounds like he is approximating what like a full tshuva would be, you know, to try to rectify it the best of possible. I don't know if he in his mind is sort of saying, I'm going to do good deeds with my money you know, or I'm going to rectify the past that I have, you know, to the best of my ability. So technically, you know, real tshuva does require owning the responsibility to the degree that you're trying to rectify it. Not just that from here on in, you're going to be doing, you're going to be philanthropic and so on. So that would be an interesting question in the middle case. And in the third one, you know, the problem is that we use the term religious to refer to, uh, just to refer to the ritual realm. Oh, he prays three times a day and he puts on filling and this and that, so he's religious. I mean, if people are not keeping, you know, the the interpersonal mitzvahs, last I checked, they were just as much mitzvahs as everything else. And, you know, I don't know how we call these people, you know, religious if, if they're not if they're not living up to the dictates of the religion. But um, you know, but but anyway, but certainly I think just because this person has now adopted more of the ritual, this, you know, does not address the 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 sin of uh, you know the financial sins that this person has done and all the people that were hurt by it. Thank you. Yeah. Someone else. At the risk of uh, monopolizing the airwaves, what about the sex offender who does? the uh, offense within the family unit or the the wife beater mm. so and and your what and your question is My like question, how, obviously you've got yetzerhara and you've got a victim that's right there right um, and and if there are children involved there you can't divorce from your children so how how do we handle that um in, as a community Right. I mean, well, I think that the first question to ask, and like, I mean, you know, that, that I'm not, I'm not a social worker. I don't work directly in these cases, but I think that there's got to be an answer, like in that type of a case. I mean, I, you know, I imagine that the answer has a lot to do with, yeah, like, you know, you, you got to divorce your wife and maybe you can see your kids under, you know, under supervision. And I mean, there's, there, you know, if you would ask, if you would ask somebody who works in this, what is what can be done to protect everybody's safety? You know that would be the first. Uh, that, you know that would be the first steps. If it means that um, somebody you know abused his sister and now then he and, and the sister's traumatized by being around, then he should never go home when his sister's home. You know, I think that there I, there are clear steps that can be taken to protect people. So um, that I guess my that you know that's my response. That the number one. The basic message that I'm getting trying to get across here is believing in Cuba doesn't mean that we have to believe in a fantasy. We have to live in the real world. And our primary responsibility is to to people that are victims or would be victims, and it's to protect everybody's safety. 
you know, and that's the, so that's the basic sort of guiding principle, which again, does not mean that once we've done that, we can't show sympathy and we can't, under, you know, and so on. But the first responsibility is that. Um, I, I want to also respond, somebody wrote in the, in the chat, you know, Rambam says not to think about things. What if thinking about them is helping them know what triggers them? Yes, I don't think that's absolutely true. And it probably could be true by a lot of other sort of violations as well. I, Rambam, that should not be read too literally. What Rambam actually means is like, you should not be, you know, like, uh, obsessing about them, like, oh, I just can't wait till I get back to the, you know, to the casino, and I would just love to be doing this, you know, you have to try to redirect your thoughts. Now, that's not always possible, you know, because that's where people's thoughts go, and if they have this as a deep part of who they are, you know, so they can try to restructure their lives, but we're not asked to do things that are beyond our ability. You know, there's ways in which we can sort of indulge our thoughts and obsess about them and do things to feed that those obsessions. And then there's ways in which we can try to get ourselves invested into other things. But that's really what he means. It does not mean like good therapeutic work of being reflected. He means like a type of an obsession of thinking about it so that it's feeding into the desire to do it and keeping you in that whole deeply conflictual world or, you know, dangerous world. So uh, Rabbi Linzer, if I can throw in one, um, uh, a question that's less relevant to maybe the legal realm, but more just a broader religious moral framework, which is how do we think about complicity um, when we were unknowingly complicit in supporting institutions or leaders? How do we think about teshuva where we're not necessarily mm -hmm. legally bound by it? And, you know, let me give out two sort of broad frameworks. One might be Let's assume, because it's in the press, we can talk about it. Let's assume Leslie Wexner knew nothing about Jeffrey Epstein and what mm -hmm. Jeffrey Epstein was doing. What is the responsibility of someone like a Leslie Wexner, aside from saying, I didn't know, of course I denounced that. And then on our own personal level, when we support businesses, we support leaders or institutions, and then we find out something, we can simply say, oh, that's horrible, we denounced that, obviously. But on a religious moral level, how do, we, how do we respond going forward to sort of some tiny degree of complicity of having been associated with people who did things? Yeah, so I really appreciate that question. That is such a good question because, you know, our focus is so often on perpetrators and victims and not on the sort of bystanders or the people whose silence or other types of actions are complicit. And as we all know, you know, it's... Uh, who was who the one that said that, you know, all evil needs to succeed is for good men to stand stand by and be silent? And so it, I, I, I really, really appreciate that question. Um, and, you know, Halacha certainly recognizes a responsibility, a responsibility, first of all, to intervene if somebody is being endangered, we have a responsibility to intervene. And if somebody is doing something wrong, we have a responsibility, you know, even if nobody is being endangered, we have a responsibility to give what's called tochacha, you know, and to tell them not to do it. And even if they're not going to listen to it, we have to be, you know, there's an idea of doing it just to voice objection, even if it's not going to change the person's, um, you know, the person's actions. And, uh, you know, we just sort of finished, you know, got off Tishabov now not too recently ago. And the Gemara says that, you know, that God said that the punishment that the destruction of the temple would start with the righteous, because the righteous saw what was happening and they didn't do anything about it. So it is so central to our, you know, understanding of our responsibility, but it, it doesn't get sufficiently raised in this area of tshuva. So I, I, first of all, I really want to express my appreciation. You know, how do, how do people who were complicit, how do, you know, bystanders who could have done something, just to sort of, just to ask the question and say, like, they have to think about what tshuva they have to do. For being, for you know, for being complicit bystanders, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm just repeating myself because it's such an excellent point. Like, I don't think we ever say that in any of our discussion in the discourse. Like, who has ever heard any rabbi on Yom Kippur, you know, say we should also think about ways in which we've been complicit and we could have done something more, you know, for somebody else when they were doing something wrong? Like, anyway, so first of all, Rabbi really thank you. It's a really critical point, and we have to just think about that more and begin to own that. Um, in terms of the specific issues that you raise, I mean, look, if somebody really doesn't know about anything, then you can't have guilt by association, you know? I think what you're actually asking is some of these people say they didn't know, but probably they were being a little willfully blind, you know? I don't want to know, whatever, I've heard, I'm not paying attention to it, and so on. So, um, but, you know, you can't be responsible for something that you have absolutely no fault, in, you know, in. But um, I guess... 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts, meaning all I, I would say is that, you know, we have to start by saying people who are complicit bystanders have to do tshuva as well. They've made the evil possible, like all those sources I've cited in the Talmud, you know, that the, and, uh, and, uh, and even though they're passive, because like, we often think about sin as being active, not about being passive. Right. But, you know, but to, but to own that, yeah, you sin by standing silently by, you know, so, um, and the tshuva is, what can I do next time? I mean, don't they have, in some schools, they have, um, by, like, what is it, like bystander training or, you know, uh, what's it called? Not bystander. Um, um, uh, bias? No, not bias. No, but what's that, what's it called? You know, you have the victim bully, and the perpetrator. Bully training? Yeah, bully but, it's, training? But, it's, but it's training the people that are not the perpetrator and not the victim, uh, right? So, um um, uh, so anyway, I think the, uh, there's another word that they use, not just bystander, but basically in the high schools they're actually doing this and sort of saying, we're going to train everybody else about what they're doing, how they can make a difference, you know, if they're standing off on the side, sidelines. So, you know, I guess my first answer originally is that, is that we have to bring that into our discourse and exactly that. Like we have to be talking about not only how do we not sin, but how do we not make it possible for other people to sin? You know, how do we not stand silently by? And if we do, then that requires tshuva, but it's harder to do tshuva for being, for not doing something than for doing something, you know? You know, it's not only Lex Wex, it's not only Lex Wex, Les Wexner, Bill Clinton is in that same boat and so is Alan Dershowitz among others who mm -hmm. have been seen with Jeffrey Epstein on numerous occasions. Right. But look, some people could genuinely be innocent. I mean, yeah, not, be, be. not be complicit, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this bystander know, I, intervention. I'm just going to yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm just, I just checked this out on Wikipedia. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, just, uh, just <laughs> what are your thoughts, Shmuley? Can you share mm -hmm. your thoughts about mm -hmm. that? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, just a closing thought, and then we'll wrap up here. Um, and we look forward to continuing this, this, this learning. But I think about this all the time, my own complicity in a whole host of issues um, societally. And I think the most complicated one is economically. No, I, I, I buy Apple products and I know slave labor is, is in some way involved. Or right. do, have we always uh, avoided blood diamonds? Have we always bought fair trade? So when it comes economically, we mm -hmm. know we're, or, or now we have the Uyghur genocide in China and the amount of, the amount of uh, clothes in America that comes from supporting that concentration camp labor. Mm -hmm. um, it's really terrifying. And it's easy to say never again. It's easy to say that's an abuser. But when mm -hmm. I look at myself and I look at the complexity of being a part of America, our mm -hmm. complicity of voting for candidates who did horrible things, our complicity of buying products produced in horrible ways, of um, supporting leaders you know, who have done things. And so you know, right. I, I, um, I, and my answer here, because it gets so overwhelming, is it, not an answer, but my, my reflection here is partially that we have to take baby steps to move off of practices that um, are destroying the planet, are, are, are really killing lives. Um, but also we have to look at the issues where we're still causing harm, even where we can't get ourselves off of it yet. Even though, because it's, we're, it's, it's almost impossible not to be complicit in certain harms of capitalism. Look, I think capitalism is a good thing, but there's harms. Right. And so, um, but we have to double down in um, kind of our tikkun, our repair right. of some of the damages that come from that. Um, but, you know, but I think we don't even have a discourse for it yet. You know? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. The big problem is that we do not have a discourse. And that's why I was just so taken by the question. Like the, the first major step is to just say that. How are we thinking about the Cuba we need to do for the things we didn't, you know, we were complicit in as being bystanders or as being part party to things and so on. Like that would be amazing if that became like a, like, you know, this coming Yom Kippur or something, you know, this coming uh, L season, like that became something that we would be raising broadly as a community. I think, you know, we really have to begin to internalize that and make that part of our discourse. I will say, Rashmuli, the examples you gave are a little bit different and I think they point to different, right. um, different difficulties. You yeah. spoke about things that were active. I'm going to buy meat, which I know is supporting this horrific, you know, whole industry, right? Or stuff made in China. I'm actually doing something. But the impact that I'm having by myself is, is completely trivial and negligible. Right. But right? it's only because everybody else does it. So how guilty do you want me to feel because I'm buying stuff from China? What difference does that really make, right? And I have to just multiply my case and say, yeah, but I'm part of everybody else who's doing it. The scenario that we were giving before, you know, about Weinstein and others, 
is like, is like, I'm not active, I'm totally passive, but it's very specific and concrete that I could do something here and intervene and make a difference, you know, or at least voice my objection. So both of those present, present challenges of owning a sense of responsibility. One, because it's totally passive, right? Even though you can really make a difference. And the other, because even though you're active, but because it's uh, your particular role is completely negligible. So, you know, I think that those are both an issue of complicity, but they present different types of challenges. Yeah. yeah. Okay, amazing. I would love to continue this conversation. This was brilliant and thoughtful. And, um, and I, I think this has given so much food for thought in the sources and contemporary relevance. So thank you so much, Rabbi Linzer. For My pleasure. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. And thank you all for joining us. And if you know someone who meant to join but couldn't, where you have the recording to share with them as well. Um, lots of other great learning events coming up this week. I know you all get our emails, so I won't hash them out now. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. Bye.